opening your Bibles, if you would, again this morning to the book of Ezra. Ezra, we'll be looking today at chapter 3 and actually uh, just trickling into the first few verses of chapter 4 as well. The story of William Carey is well known to many. It's been told and retold over and again in, the, in pulpits and, uh, and sermons and books and, and, and other places. For those of you who aren't aware of the story, you'll remember that young William Carey was a man who had developed an intense zeal for the lost of the world, and he appealed to the leader of his Baptist association, of which he was a part, a fellow by the name of John Rylands, and uh, he, he made an appeal to address the problem of bringing the gospel to the nations. It wasn't being done. It was reported at the meeting that the leader here, John Ryland, publicly rebuked Carey for being an enthusiast. An enthusiast the, the, the enthusiast was a group uh, not only known for their aggressive evangelism, but also for their novelty and also for the bizarre behavior sometimes that they w- would engage in that was rather troubling to the, to the church. And so he calls carry an enthusiast, and he further says this, when God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. See, John Rylands had very little by way of zeal for evangelism. He had a very strong belief in the sovereignty of God, so strong perhaps that he took it to excess, sometimes known as hyper- Calvinism. He believed in the sovereignty so, so strongly that he actually said, we don't have any responsibility as humans any longer. Of course, Carey's well known for his impassioned reply the next year with a sermon, attempt great things for God and expect great things from God. And this resulted in an overturning of that earlier decision and a, a decision by that Northampton Association of Baptists to commission Carey uh, to go to India. The story doesn't end there, however, and I think we actually find that the story doesn't have an entirely happy ending. See, when William Carey finally got permission, his, his commission to go to India, he was so excited about it that he went directly uh, to, uh, to, to, to reserve a place on a ship to India before he even went home to inform his wife that they were going. She was a bit alarmed. She wasn't prepared for it. She had no idea that this was coming. And they, in general, made poor preparations. Perhaps we couldn't expect this. This is really the first of their kind of foreign missions going, going out here in the modern, modern world. They didn't take enough food. They nearly starved along the way. Uh, they, they more than, more than one occasion, they uh, had illness that uh, nearly took their lives. She was not prepared for this. She actually lost her mind and spent the last 13 years of her life alone in a padded room for her own safety. We tend to bury this story because we're so enamored by and excited by the fact that the modern mission movement began with William Carey, and many souls were saved because of his ministry. But you see, along the way, there was a case of zeal without preparation. 
And sometimes that can be as big a problem, perhaps even a bigger problem, than not having zeal in the first place. And this morning, as we look at Ezra chapter 3 and 4, I think we're going to see an example of both of these side by side, zeal and preparation. And I think it does something for us, not just to give us a historical recounting of what happened then, but also gives us instruction, prescription, for what we're supposed to be doing here in the 21st century. So let's look together at chapter 3. We'll read it together along with a couple of verses from uh, verse 4 along the way, and, and let's unpack this this morning. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1, Now when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities, and the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to bur offer burnt offerings upon it, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the land, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, each day as required. Then afterward, there was a continual burnt offering for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated, and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day to the se of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not yet been laid. So they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa according to the permission that they had received from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, six months later, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers and the priests and the Levites and all who came to the ca from captivity to Jerusalem began the work appointed for the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua and his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad with their sons, the brothers of the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions that King David of Israel had given to them. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout, and they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers of households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of the Lord was, the house of the Lord was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you. For we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. 
But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the house of the father's household, heads of the father's households of Israel, said to them, You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God, but we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded me. For those of you who have not been here for the last two weeks, or perhaps last week, and the weather was quite poor last week, we started two weeks ago a series through the book of Ezra. This is the first of the books of the return that we find in the scriptures, the other being Nehemiah and, of course, Esther, uh, sandwiched within, in the middle of Ezra between chapters 6 and 7. This is, remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed. Solomon's great temple had been mowed down, cut down, the stones torn down, and had lain empty for 50 years. 586 was when Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. They come back here 50 years later in 536. Things looked rather gloomy for the people of God. The nations around them were attempting to thwart the plans of God, to nullify his promises to the people of Israel. Things were looking gloomy. And then God moved suddenly, miraculously, in the heart of Cyrus the king of Persia, to actually fund their return back to the land. As we look together over the first two chapters of the book, we saw two themes emerge. First, in chapter 1, we saw that God is sovereign over the affairs of nations, making things happen that did not seem possible uh, after uh, the, the terrible things that had happened to Israel. Secondly, we also saw, specifically last, last week, the fact that God's promises are unfailing. And we saw here listed the heads of families of uh, some 130 families, 42,360 Israelites, each one with a connection with this people of God that's established here, together with provisions for the, even the temple treasures have been returned to them, and they're, and they're returning to the land, and there's a, there's a feeling of great optimism. And here in chapter 3, they arrive back. Okay, so now, now, now they're back in the land, and we see these returning 42,000 people back in the land in the first month of the year, or the Jewish calendar, early March. And what do they do? Well, they immediately scatter. We didn't read it, but the very last verse of chapter 2 tells us that they scattered to live in their various cities for a period of seven months. So the first of the month in March, the first of the year, which in in the Israelite calendar would have been March. They scattered around the countryside immediately trying to put in a crop, uh, uh, restoring their, their houses and their households, and they're trying to establish their towns and their cities. And after a season of growing, they put in their, their crop, they reap a harvest, God is good to them, and then they are called back together here in chapter 3, to celebrate what we might think of as the first Thanksgiving, right? And that's exactly what happened with the, uh, uh, with the, uh, the pilgrim fathers of, 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 of the Americas here. Uh, they scattered, they planted their crops, but they, at the harvest they came together to give thanks. They were establishing a new holiday, as it were, the, the holiday of Thanksgiving. Uh, these Israelites were renewing an old holiday, the old holiday of the Feast of Tabernacles were called here the Feast of Booths. They hadn't forgotten why they had come back. 
They had settled in the land, but they came back here to settle the real reason for why they had come together. The, the, the triumph wasn't simply in arriving. Okay. That wasn't it. The triumph wasn't simply that they were going to build their houses and, and resume life as it was. They wanted to restore a functioning theocratic state complete with the rulership as well as the temple cultus, the, the religious practice of the people. And this was important to them. And so they came together as a whole. The whole group came back together uh, in order to address this problem. We look here at the priorities that they take then to take the zeal that they had to restore what had been lost and see how they went about it. And hopefully we can find some instruction here. First of all, we see that unity was a priority. First verse here in chapter 3, we find that all the people came together as one man. Virtually every one of the 42,000 returnees from Babylon assembled together at the Temple Mount. It's a very large area, easily able to accommodate that number of people. But, same time, that was no small feat. Remember these 42,000 people had scattered throughout the countryside among people that were going to be introduced here in the first few verses of four, people who had taken over while they were gone. And so they put in their crops, they had reaped a harvest, they had rebuilt their homes, and yet they were not safe in the land. But, to a man, they all left in order to make sometimes a very long journey to Jerusalem, as, mu as much as 100 miles, and on foot and on uh, you know, small beasts of, of, of labor. Uh, some of these folks were traveling a week to get to this place, but they had decided that they were going to come together to rebuild a comprehensive work of God. As one commentary I read on this passage states, God's people in every age have discovered repeatedly united worship is a necessary means of dealing with difficult and dangerous situations. I think that's a, it's a remarkable statement. and It's an important one that we all need to, you know, home in on, even as we find ourselves here in the 21st century church in a difficult situation. We're in a transitional time. Any time that a church is without its pastor, the situation is difficult. Potentially, it's it's dangerous for the lives of the individuals they're in. And so now is the time to gather together most earnestly, to make our sacrifices, and to offer our prayers to God. This is a matter of utmost priority. This was not an easy thing they did. Bob was talking this morning about how sometimes it is difficult to get to church. I get it. And it's, it's not easy for everyone to come. It's easier for some of you than for others. These people were traveling 100 miles to get here. And, and you know, it wasn't an easy journey. You probably had some, you know, little tips along the way in the 10-minute car ride between your home and here. And some, some grins and looks are going across faces here. You know, there were, there, there were moments, even in that 10 minutes, where things didn't go quite right. Well, these are people who are traveling a week. I guarantee there were some tensions along the way. There were some squirmy kids, right, that just weren't doing exactly what they were supposed to be doing along the way. There were problems, and yet they made it a priority to come together. Family tensions, 
There were hardships that had to be resolved, and yet they did what they could to come. But they were going to a place, we're going to see here, that was a shell of its former glory. There weren't any plush seats. There wasn't any coffee made. There were no happy, colorful nurseries for the children. The buildings the, you know, that, 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 that housed the orchestras and the choirs that had once been there were silent. There weren't any choirs. In fact, the building itself was gone. The place was in total disarray. There were many, many reasons not to go. So why did they go? Well, because people of every age have discovered repeatedly that united worship is a necessary means of dealing with difficult or dangerous circumstances. So we're reminded here that we need not to abandon the true God for idols, which are not necessarily stone objects out there, but anything in the present that seems to give us more comfort and, uh, and to, to take our time away from that which is truly important. They met together in the most unlikely and meager of circumstances. There was very little attraction to this event, and yet they came because they saw it as a major priority. When they got there, they saw that we, we see then that their worship was a priority. So, so coming together in the first place, you know, to, to, uh, to in, in unity was important, but then worship. You, you notice the very first thing that the people did was rebuild the altar. This is exactly what David had done. Remember, you know, David, King David, uh, he wanted to, you know, he wanted to build the temple. He wanted to do everything. But God said, no, your son is going to build the temple. Solomon's going to build the temple. But what did David do? He built the altar. That was one thing he did. Because, because there was a recognition that one can come together in unity and worship without a building. But you couldn't do it, at least in their system there, without an altar. How often in our current day we think entirely the opposite about the function of the church. Before we can have any church, we have to have all the pieces in place. There has to be a building, there has to be a nursery, there has to be a piano and somebody to play it, so forth. And then we can start worshiping as proper churches do. Because you can't have worship with those things, right? <laughs> well, yes, you can. Now, certainly, if we had no building, it would be uncomfortable. It might be okay today. Last week it would have been a little bit dicey. But we could have church without a building. We could have church without a nursery. We could have church without a piano or someone to play it. You know, last week we had a piano, but uh, you know, we had a little trouble uh, with, uh, with someone to play it. And there was a temptation, probably you know, those of you who are here, maybe, maybe, we, maybe we should only sing two verses of each of the songs, or maybe cut out one of the songs. But we didn't. Why? because the unity of the worship was necessary and a piano was not necessary to it. And so we tried to belt it out the best we can and we were hopeful that what we sang was pleasing to God because that's what we needed to do. That was the requirement that was made of us. But despite the lack of all the things that they had, the people agreed we really need one thing, that we need an altar. Uh, the priority of the altar in the Old Testament was the priority of one's relationship with God. You had to make preparation 
for meeting him in prayer. You had to have a forum for the examination of one's life in view of the written scripture so that the people could worship the God having confessed their sins in spirit and in truth, not just following the forms, but engaging the whole of the being and the worship, their whole, the whole of their being in the worship of God. We have forms in the church as well. The preparation is not in the coffee or the organ or the comfy, attractive seating. If that's what we need, then perhaps we could even look around today and say, you know, our preparations may not have been as adequate as they might have been. But the real preparation for worship doesn't happen with those things. It happens first in homes and in cars on the way, and then at 10 o'clock with prayers in which we are led, which implies what? That we're following as well. There were multiple prayers made. There, were, there was worship in song, a call to worship as we sought to edify one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing with grace in our hearts to God. And I asked, did you do that this morning? I, 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 I know you, the words were coming out. But did you do those things? Were you singing with grace in your heart to worship God and to edify the people around you? When you heard the scriptures this morning, did you hear the, the, the delightful comforts that are promised there? You're perhaps thinking right now, what, what was it that was read this morning? Now, do you remember that Christ says, I have overcome and your joy will be full? Ask and you will receive and your joy will be full? I will come again and your joy will be full? There was something rich there. Did you hear it? Did you hear it this morning? It was there. It was there for us to hear. Uh, but did we prepare ourselves to hear it? That's, that's the question. That's the question. There was a lot of things in Ezra's day to distract them. They were scared, verse 3 says. They were terrified. Scared that when they went home, there wouldn't even be a house there. I mean, we're worried about what we're going to eat after the service here. Are we going to go to the restaurant? What's, what's mom going to cook for us today? What, you know, they were thinking, I wonder if there's going to be a house when we go home. And anything at all to eat. They were afraid. And yet they managed to fixate on one priority, worshiping God. Uh, and saying that, Worship was a high priority. doesn't mean it's the only thing that was going on here. I'm not suggesting that we need to be satisfied with all things the way they are. And they not saying that they didn't yearn for more. We're going to see a little bit about that at the end of the chapter here. Some were just yearning for a great deal more than what they had. But they didn't meet with complaint or discouragement. They didn't focus on the deficiency, but in the holy pursuit, of excellence in worship. And that's a third point here, excellence. Excellence is a priority. And here I think we see where clear heads tempered the zeal of the people in a very healthy way. Instead of letting discouragement get the better of them or conversely letting their zeal run amok, they spent six months together preparing for the next step, building the foundation of the temple. Even though the Jewish remnant had returned and with, with relative poverty, they hired skilled craftsmen and masons to begin the work on the new temple. 
Like David and Solomon before them, they secured the best grades of wood in the known world and transport them hundreds of miles from present-day Lebanon, renowned in its day for the quality of its lumber. If I can bring that into the present day, I commend your practice, your patience, as the, as the uh, leaders of this church search for an excellent candidate. You know, you say, it's been a few years, a few, few months here, not years. <laughs> it's been a few months here. Let's, let's just get somebody in here and get it going. Well, sometimes preparation needs to be made. Good leaders are not easily come by, and frank, quite frankly, the best leaders are usually engaged somewhere else in ministry and can't just be pried away immediately. They can't just disengage to be here next week. Excellence takes time and effort. Nor, frankly, when a new pastor has been installed, will he make instant and miraculous improvements to the church. They're going to take time. And hopefully you're in it for the long haul you're going to get behind him and participate with him as you gradually make the necessary improvements so that the work of God is carried out with greater excellence than it is now. So what do we do? Well, if there's impatience in your heart, by all means, work on improving your ministry in the church. There's opportunities. We heard about them this morning, right? There's things that you can do to, to clean up about here, to, 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 to fix things that are broken, uh, to to, to minister in areas that the ministry is no longer being done. There's areas here. If you, if you want to participate in the life of the church, just ask. There's a long list. There's plenty of things that you can do to keep the excellence of this ministry where it is. Keep encouraging. Keep fellowshipping. Keep, keep scouring the nursery so that the little ones are safe. Keep preparing your music your prayers, your Sunday school lessons, your efforts at keeping the church fresh and pleasant. Keep giving. Now's a great time to make sure that your financial house is in order, right? You're, you're, you're not paying a full-time pastor right now. You, you, you should be able to um, you know, close some gaps you know, and make sure that things are in place so that when the new pastor comes, that can be translated both ways. And as we look throughout our Bibles, it can be translated either way. So the dictionary is not really much help because both, word, both translations are legitimate translations of this word. So it leaves us in a situation where we need to appeal to the whole testimony of Scripture and theology. And I think it's here that our, our answer emerges. Uh, the reading that requires a pastor's children to, be, to be believers, I think, suffers from three deficiencies. Let me read these. Well, let me, let me uh, point these out. First is theological. Uh, put simply, no one can guarantee the salvation of their children. It can't be done. There are, I believe, certain moral qualities and habits that through careful and consistent instruction, discipline, and mentoring can be all but guaranteed in children. We can come back to that in a minute. But salvation is strictly a work of God. No one can ensure that his children are saved, much as we would love to be able to do that. We can't ensure that. As the Apostle John says in John 1.13, regeneration is not of blood, that is, it's not of genetic or hereditary things, it's not of the will of any man, but of God's elective prerogative alone. I find it difficult, not impossible, but difficult, to see Paul requiring a pastor to do or to be something that he's incapable of being or doing in order to qualify for pastoral ministry. Okay, that's our first one. You might not be convinced yet, but let's keep going. 
Second reason why I think we uh, should, should re reject the idea that their children have to be believers is contextual. In this list, every other item has to do with the pastor's character or skills, qualities that he has honed and cultivated in the service of God and of Christ, and a requirement that has nothing to do with character or skill, but God alone doesn't seem to fit the list. Third, I think, is practical. Requiring a pastor to have only believing children would require that he wait until all of his children pass some undefined age of accountability, and if he should happen to have any more, he'd have to step down until the children become believers. So, no parent of young children could be a pastor. I think if you put all these together, theological and practical, I think this suggests here that the reading should be that uh, the pastor's children be marked by faithful deportment. Now, that's the idea here of the word. They are to be children of faith or children of faithfulness. That is faithful deportment. That's the question. And I think the implication here is that they need to effectively toe the line in terms of their behavior. As such, the rest of the verse, which requires that pastor's children not be accused of dissipation or of rebellion, or in other translations, not be accused of debauchery or insubordination. It's not a separate requirement, but actually explains what is meant. They have to have faithful deportment. That is, they can't be accused of or known within the community as children marked by debauchery, dissipation, or rebellion. Let's look at those two terms. First, this term dissipation or debauchery, it's a rare term again, used in Scripture only four times. Once as a description of sins produced by drunkenness, and once rather famously to describe the behavior of the prodigal son who wasted his father's inheritance on riotous living. Same word here. The term brings to mind wild, out-of-control parties, marked by sensual behavior, carousing, and often the abuse of alcohol. Okay? So if pastor or a potential pastor has a child who is marked by this kind of behavior, then the, the man aspiring to be pastor is disqualified. The second term here, rebellion, or in other translations, insubordination, is only used one other time in Scripture. That's in 1 Timothy 1.9, where Paul describes the law as being designed for the insubordinate which God goes on to give, Paul goes on to give examples of the behavior. Here are the vices. Killing one's parents, which I suppose would disqualify a parent. Murder, adultery, perversion, and slave trading. So, so, the, so the, the list, these, these two items here, are extreme lists. It's, it's not as though you, someone is disqualified because, you know, the kid said a peep during the, uh, during the church service, or even, you know, you know, called out or, you know, scribbled really hard and, you know, don't be looking that closely, poor wife and kids, uh, but do observe whether the kids are towing the line. If a, if, if a man loses control of his children, that's the idea, that a man loses control of his children, then likely he's going to lose control of the church. Okay, so that's, that's the implication here. 
Okay, so the pastor's children need to be submissive. That is, they need to be respectful, under control, disciplined, not silent, not immobile, but when they're told what to do, they do it. Okay. Again, Paul tells us why. Because if the pastor doesn't know how to manage those living within his house, how can he manage those who are in his church? Which brings us then full circle to our introduction. The pastor's relationship with his wife and his children is a microcosm of how he's going to handle the church. So what then shall we say to these very sobering qualifications, violations of which have left many churches over the years in shambles because they have been careless with respect to these? Well, we've already made much of the fact that we here at Ambassador Baptist Church must give all diligence in our search for a new man. But I'd like to actually sort of close with a, with a perhaps a twist, a little bit of an observation here. With the exception of the one skill set of teaching and evangelism, every item on this list and every item on the list in 1 Timothy 3 is, in fact, a character quality. These are character qualities that are achievable by every person in this room. They're character qualities that are achievable by every person in this room. So why do we have such a rigorous list? Well, because the pastor needs to be a master already of character qualities they expect from all of us, right? He expects these things from all of us. So let's forget just for a moment here the fact that you're asking these questions of a pastor and ask them of ourselves. They're within our reach. They're goals that we should have, each one of us. How are you doing with these requirements, men especially? Are you a one-woman man, both physically and virtually? While I've made a point here about the term not meaning one man woman, I'll ask the same question, nonetheless, of the ladies here. Are you a one man woman, both in the bedroom and in your thoughts? Teenagers, single folks here. Well, of course, <laughs> I'm a no woman man, or I'm a no man woman. I don't have any yet. Both, uh, and, uh, in, in, and I say, I hope so. I hope so. But I'm not so naive as to imagine that there's temptations out there that allow you to be a multiple woman man or a multiple man woman that are available as close as a click away. You don't have to be married to violate this requalification. So if there is a problem here that's going on, stop it now. Confess your sins to God. Resolve today to start afresh, building that long-term reputation for fidelity in every area, but especially this one. Because no sin can blow apart a life or a family, a marriage, a church, more than this one. Mom, Dad, are you in charge at your home? Are you losing control? Kids, what about you? I know this was for the older folks here, but let's not forget that 
children here are also moral agents from the oldest to the youngest. So whether or not mom and dad are dropping the ball, focus on this. Are you a faithful child? Are you being obedient? Are you pursuing after these things that will result in your salvation? So there's no exceptions just because you're a child. There's a judgment seat awaiting for everyone. Now, did I miss anybody? I hope not. I was trying to shoot with a, you know, a broad shotgun here. Because it's not just a pastor who can shatter a family or who can shatter a church with sins of this nature. It can be any of us. And so, may the Lord grant each one of us to aspire to these lofty ideals, not only for the man in the pulpit, but for every single one of us who sits in the pews week by week. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your grace. Lord, we thank you that even though we may have failed in any one of these areas, and you know, it's possible that there are several here who are beating themselves up, even right now, because there has been a failure, whether that's been recent or some time ago, and it eats away at the soul. Lord, I ask that tonight there will be a, an earnest confession of sin and failure and a recognition that forgiveness comes from you. That forgiveness is there and I can tonight, right now, start afresh to build that reputation for being above reproach. And I ask that each person in this room would aspire to that. Even as we look for a man to fill the pulpit who is already qualified in these areas. Lord, I pray, pray this, that we might be pleasing to you as a church in all that we say and do. In your name we pray. Amen. Her life or her child, which one is she most concerned with? My life now or that child's life who's going to, who is going to succeed me? And her choice was easy. But we've got the same choice, right? You can, get, you can live your life for yourself now knowing that you'll lose it. Or you can sacrifice your life now with the promise that you'll receive it. That's the choice. That's in a nutshell what Christ's appeal is for us when he asks us to become slaves of God. In many ways, this choice is easier than Julie Prater's choice because everyone's a winner, right? God is glorified, the church grows, and while I lose my life now, I act, actually am rewarded with a better one later. And so the burning question with which we are all left as we, as we, as we wrap up this introduction here to the book of Titus is this. Will I remain a slave to myself, walk by sight, concentrate on this life, or will I defer to the next life, walk by faith, and become a slave of God. And that's the burden of the letter to Titus. And so he implores us, in effect, to make the correct choice. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifices you have made on our behalf, uh, becoming effectively a slave of all of us in order to bring us to God. And Lord, I ask as we ponder that fact, and we consider the fact that, in fact, 
our, our lives are not our own, uh, that we would, in fact, willingly and voluntarily give our lives in service to Jesus Christ, knowing that the church will profit, that you will be pleased, and that we will be greatly rewarded in the next life. We pray for this in your name. Amen.